Welcome, everyone. This is episode 29 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Doug Polk. So, Doug, why don't we start? Why don't you give some some background on the challenge, how it how it came to be and then how it became such a big event? Because I, I think this is one of the most watched pieces of poker content in poker history. Yeah. So first off, thanks for having me on. Um, it's good to finally talk again. It's been a little bit since we last chatted. Uh, actually, you joined me for a podcast, uh, I want to say around a year ago or so. Um, but it's good to, good to talk to you and uh, hopefully we can have some, some good conversations today. But yeah, the, the challenge was the challenge is interesting. It's, it's one of the very few times in history in poker where two people talked a bunch of shit, a challenge was, was issued, it was accepted, and then it actually was played. I, I, I can't so few of these have actually happened. I mean, obviously, Phil Galfond, as you know, has his own selection of challenges lined up, too. But uh, it was it was cool getting to see the community sort of rally around this spectacle of, of two guys just duking it out in the online felt. And uh, definitely happy that I managed to walk away with the win. Give us the the exact history of of how the challenge started. When you say guys were trash talking a challenge a challenge was issued. How did it go down? All right. So there's a lot of different things that happen. I'm going to do my best here to, to, to hit on the most important points. But you know, if you're not familiar, myself and Daniel have a, have a long history of sort of uh, feuding about various subjects. Uh, there was an, uh, a conversation about whether he could beat 2850 online back in 2014, where he thought he could do it with two weeks of study. And I thought that, that was ridiculous. And then, of course, there was a podcast he did where, uh, you know, he, he talked about, you know, how more rate could be good for players that I thought was also kind of ridiculous. So we had we've had a back and forth for some time. And then uh, in August of last year, Nick Shulman tweeted and it was a picture of me and said something about remember when this animal you know, came in with his shirt, blasted it off, and then we didn't hear from him again or something like that. And then Negranu responded with a picture of some guy getting knocked out and it said, I spanked him like a petulant child. Uh, that, that, of course, got, got a response going from me, went back and forth for a bit, and ultimately I challenged him to a heads-up match, mainly just bluffing. I didn't think he would accept because I just assumed that he would know that he would be a huge underdog in that format. But he actually did accept. And then from there, we kind of hash it out publicly. It was actually a very weird negotiation process. Usually when you agree to a challenge, both people will talk to each other one-on-one and they'll come to some agreements and then they'll announce them. This was, he would tweet, hey, Doug, I'm thinking we do this. And then I had to say, hey, Daniel, yeah or no. And, and so it was all public, which is very rare for, I think, something like this to, to happen. But we, we sort of tweeted back and forth, uh, got got all the logistics squared away. We got a, a judge who actually was Phil Galfon for this challenge, just in case we need an arbitrator to come in and say, you know, the solution to some problems that we might have. And we agreed on 25,000 hands at 200, 400, no limit hold'em. So for those of you guys who don't know, that's a $40,000 buy-in. And uh, it's pretty it's pretty high stakes. One of the one of the higher stakes games that we would see online today. I don't think that many sites have games that are running that high. So nosebleed heads up no limit where uh, you know, very clearly a player could lose seven figures or win seven figures, which was uh, which was a good sized game for sure. I spanked him like a petulant child. Was he referring to something that that happened in real life? Like he he beat you in the big live pod or did that did that refer to anything? Yeah, there was a tournament that we played in, I want to say 2018, where we actually table drew for a $300,000 buy-in and we got the same table seated next to each other. So it was, 
you know, people people wanted to know if it was rigged because it, it, it was a little too a little too juicy to be true that we drew seats next to each other. And uh, basically, I showed up and I had a hoodie on. And I busted out my hoodie and I said, more rake is better on a billboard uh, to signify the billboard that I had bought across the street from the Rio that said more rake is better on it. So it was a, a whole bit. Oh, wow. This does have a long history. I, I, it does. You know okay. about the billboard? I, I vaguely remember it now that you mention, yeah. but wow, this is a long history. Yeah, I bought the billboard across the street from the Rio so people would see Morik is better on their way to the tournaments every day, uh, which, which you know, honestly, just, just the, the laughs that were had from that was totally worth the, the cost of the billboard. But anyway, so in that tournament, we played a few bigger pots and he beat me in all of them including just having stronger hands than me. And then, and then one you know pretty late call where I was bluffing. And so he was referencing how he did in that tournament versus me. And I was kind of posturing back saying, okay, if you think you can spank me like a petulant child, let's go one-on-one. I, I'm more than happy to play you in, in the heads-up arena. So that's, that's kind of the backstory on that. When you first started negotiating, like there, were, there was no talk of, of odds, number of hands, all that st- sort of stuff. That, that stuff... You guys worked out as you went along in this Twitter negotiation. There wasn't a talk about odds. The the odds d- developed in a secondary market. This there was no side bet, and, and I think, frankly, I know it's it's juicy to have uh, side bets and challenges, and we ended up having them in this one anyway because I felt that the odds weren't reflective of what they should have been. So uh, I I wasn't planning on betting on the side, but then when it when I was only a four to one favorite, I thought that I was you know, very profitable at that line. So I ended up betting a bunch on the side anyway. But one of the problems with side bets in something like this is the side bets can have a really huge effect on the way that you have to play in the actual game itself. Because let's just say, let's just say for example, the buy-ins are 40,000. Let's just say in hypothetical land, I have a million on myself to win 250. Well, then I lose a million if I lose. So you get these situations where let's say you're up 300,000. If you lose this, you lose a million. So it's not one-to-one chip value anymore. Every dollar you make doesn't equal one dollar. Every dollar you lose doesn't lose one dollar. It's dollars that you lose are worth, you know, could be two or three dollars, whereas dollars that you gain are are worth less. So you get in these weird sort of ICM spots. And I think about uh, as someone that's played a lot of tournaments, I'm sure you understand this. It's you get end up end up in these situations where it's not about winning the chips anymore. It's about trying to maximize your value of your tournament result. And that makes situations very weird and complicated because you can't just maybe call with the right hand in a cash game that you would normally call with because you have to think about what does this, how has this changed my chance to win this whole thing? So originally I kind of wanted to avoid that and really sort of make it about the, the, the hands themselves being played. But I mean, it ended up in that direction anyway. So maybe we should have had one out of the get out of the gates. Yeah. We'll get later to a spot that happened mid match where you had a, a rough session and you went from being solidly in the lead to being pretty comfortably in the lead, but having to concern yourself with possibly losing. And it changed, maybe changed your play from that point forward. I want to get there later um, because I want to go over some, some biography first. Um, you, you basically rose up the heads up ranks and had um, very strong success very early with, what what I gathered was few setbacks and then you shifted, you shifted to the content space and basically became the number one purveyor of poker content and then kind of got burned out in that space. 
and have been kind of a lot of pots on the stove since then. And, and this challenge marked a refocus on poker. I want, I want you to just give us a quick summary of your rise up the poker ranks, maybe, uh, go into your first big heads up match, which was with sauce and, and then how you determined that you wanted to get into the, the content space and, and what that experience was like for you. Yeah, absolutely. So just a little bit of poker background. I started playing when I was uh, 18, wink, wink, uh, when I was in high school. And uh, I started playing online at PokerStars. I deposited 10, 20 bucks a bunch of times. We all know the stories of people trying to run up a bankroll. And then finally, some stuff clicked. And I started to win. I, I My background was mainly full ring out of the gate, nine-handed poker cash games. Which was where I started. Now, were you were you a serious gamer before, before this? Like, yeah, was that your background? Yeah, so we want to go even farther. But so I, I thought 18 years old was was far enough back, but apparently we got to go way back in time here. And uh, when I was when I was uh, a kid growing up, I was always into games. I was into chess. I was into StarCraft. Uh, I was into WarCraft Three. It's another strategy game. All of the nerdy games where you're playing versus one opponent and trying to outwit them. That was always my my cup of tea. And when I first found poker, I was amazed that you could play a game versus people for money. Because I think most of us growing up, our families teach us gambling is bad. The house is going to beat you. You don't want to lose your money. And so I think you get this perspective of gambling, which isn't, hey, if I'm making plus EV, EV bets, I'm winning. You get this perspective of stay away from gambling, which I think I think is fair. That's good parenting to teach your kid from a young age to not, to not want to gamble on things. But you know, the reality is if you can make plus EV bets, you should be doing so. And if you're playing versus people, you can win. So that's that's sort of the way that I found poker was through these video games, um, you know, people talking about it and talking about poker. And that's kind of what what, what launched me into wanting to play online. Um, going back to talking about running it up. So basically, I started, obviously, online small six games, kind of worked my way up. And then ultimately, uh, some, somewhere around 2008, 2009, I found my real passion, which was Heads Up No Limit. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why, but when, when I play Heads Up No Limit, it's always gone really well for me. And I think I just have a really good ability to um, to try and have a sound balanced ranges and to take the time away from the table to, to really focus on bringing a balanced strategy that is hard to counter and hard to beat to, to the game. And I've always had a lot of success with implementing that. When I got into Heads Up, I immediately started having success there. And before I knew it, I was playing in some pretty high stakes games. In fact, there was a guy named uh, Xblink back in the day. Uh, that maybe some of the people that remember some some poker games from way back in the day, uh, maybe they'll remember. But um, I played some against him. I played some against the A.E. Joneses of the world. All, all of the high six heads up guys back in the day, I started to battle and duke it out with. And that's kind of where, you know, my roots, my heads up roots started to, to grow from. Um, over the course of the next five, six years, I had had downswing, had an upswing. I was, you know, kind of kind of all over the place. But the the moral of the story was, I kind of reached the pinnacle of the heads up streets. I had a, a well publicized challenge with Ben Solsky, where I think most people at the time thought that it was the the consensus best couple of heads up guys playing each other. Uh, this is actually probably probably even still my most proud moment was beating him in that challenge. I think it really cemented me as the as the top guy in the heads up streets. And uh, that kind of was the, the peak of, of uh, I guess, my, my dominance in that arena. After that, I started to look for some new challenges. I started to play some live tournaments. That went well. I've, I've won three World Series of Poker bracelets. Uh, I also did well in, in all the high roller scene. I, I think I, um, I think if you look at my, my resume there, I, I've had a good degree of success playing in those as well. But ultimately, I just found that I kind of wanted 
I kind of didn't enjoy it in the same way that I, I liked Heads Up, and I found myself kind of wanting to do something different. You know, sometimes in life, you want to branch out, even just because even even though you might be good at something, it doesn't mean I want to do it for the rest of my life. And that's when I had the idea to launch Upswing Poker. I joined together with a couple of my my good friends, Ryan Fee, Matt Coletta, and we launched a training site that uh, could teach people poker in a different way, more, more of a course style format. At that point, it became clear, someone's going to have to promote this, okay? I looked at them, it obviously wasn't going to be either of them. I mean, Fees is great, but he wasn't going to be making YouTube videos. So, uh, you know, I fired up the camera, put together a team, and uh, the rest is kind of history. We, we grew to being the number one most viewed poker uh, YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, that was the, the background. Your, your videos were always uh, tremendously well edited, they were funny. Um, they were geared towards the modern short attention span. You you found, um, tell me if I'm getting the name right, but Seriously Serious, who used to produce popular two plus two videos back in the Full Tilt days uh, and always, always like very popular guy in poker and very funny guy. Uh, so you somehow, I guess, decided that he would be the person and you connected with with him is that right yeah i found him very early on when i started making videos i wanted to, to you know bring in people that were really talented that um i thought would do a good job and i just think about all the times that i would watch his his music videos where he would parody he'd take a famous song and he would make a poker parody version of it and post it on two plus two and frankly those videos are still to this day amazing uh and uh i wanted him to to work with me because i thought he would do a phenomenal job i've actually never posted a youtube video he didn't edit he's been my editor the entire way through and he's done a phenomenal job and and there's no way i would have had the success i had on youtube without him and would he tell you what to do or would you tell him what basically what you wanted like would he give you direction i think i think viewers would like it if you did things this way? Well, we had a creative process and we, so we had a group of people. It was me. Thomas was the editor. Uh, Jamie Cursiter helped do a lot of the writing and, and help write the jokes. And then Mike Brady was, uh, he helped a bit on some of the ideas and also more of the social media side of things. And we would kind of all put our heads together and, and come up with ideas and jokes and concepts and what we thought would be good. I don't think that there was really a lot of specific direction in that way. I think that uh, I had a lot of flexibility and freedom to, to do, to basically record the segments I thought were good. And then I would just send it off to Thomas. So we, you know, we'd have brainstorming, we'd have ideas, people would pitch jokes. I would record, I would do a lot of them. If I came up with stuff on the spot, I'd roll with that. I'd send it to Thomas. And then he would, he would cut the stuff that he thought really didn't fit. And then he would, uh, you know, edit together all the things that did and sort of add in some uh, editing jokes of his own to, to kind of bring it to life. And, and I think it was a real team effort. And one of the reasons why we managed to have such uh, high quality content that had so much density to it in terms of what was being um, brought up was that we had so many different people kind of pitching in together to, to make it to make it great. And did you did you bring your analytical mindset to to content and look at what viewers responded to and things like that? Yeah, it's cool. When you when you look at analytics on YouTube, you can see when people click off, right? You can see how long they watch, how old they are, what countries they're from, what bits they like, which bits did they rewatch, when did they leave? So for example, we found things like you know, if you, I always like to at the start to, to open with full screen me to talk about, to talk about the, the video, what it's going to be. And what I found was that didn't do well. People, it was just too much Doug. We needed less Doug. That was way too much in my face. So 
you know, if, if I was analyzing a hand, I'd start off with me in the corner with the, with the cards getting dealt. Okay, people could do that, you know, not too much Doug anymore. So they could maybe listen to me, see me, but then watch the action. Uh, and, and that increased retention. And of course, retention is one of the most important metrics that YouTube uses to decide how many people they show your video to. So there's this game of looking at the data and then taking that and then trying to be creative with your solutions in terms of how to increase your retention, increase your viewership, uh, and increase sort of the, um, the ability of, of, of your content to reach people that you sort of have to, to work on. And I think, I think that's actually very interesting and unique to the platform of YouTube because on one hand, you want to be creative and funny and have jokes and, and do all these things and, and create content people enjoy, but you also need to create stuff that, as you said, is geared for people that maybe don't have the longest attention spans. You know, you're not, you're not going to get people to sit there and, and, and just listen to, to really boring stuff. They're going to leave. And if they leave, YouTube won't show it to people. So you're sort of always caught between the wanting to do uh, the content that you most enjoy or you most want to put forward and what actually performs the best. And, and I think that uh, that Striving for the middle ground where those things intersect was what our goal was, uh, you know, in terms of our philosophy as a channel. And obviously during that time, you're, you're sort of getting paid in two ways. You're, you're getting paid a small amount from YouTube and then, and then you're getting paid in the form of subscribers for, for upswing. You would sometimes post your, your YouTube metrics and like how much you had been paid or whatever, and how many cumulative views, uh, what summary stats can you share there? Like, do you have a number for your cumulative YouTube views or, or your, your highest paid year from YouTube? When I look at YouTube, right, it costs me more money to hire the people to make the videos than what my total YouTube revenue was. I mean, my YouTube revenue was good, but I mean, I think I made, if I had to guess, it would be something like 250,000 over the course of the career of the channel was our total revenue. I think you get paid something around two, two fifty two dollars or two fifty per thousand views. And I think we did a uh, hundred million views or so, roughly. I'm kind of estimating on some of this stuff. I haven't checked the specifics lately. But that's gotta feel good. A hundred million views. Yeah, it's sick. Yeah. Think about that. That's so many people. A hundred million. And I think the average person has seen about two and a half videos. So you know that's thirty million-ish people have, have watched one of my videos on YouTube, which is which is crazy. And what's especially funny is it's all in, in a pretty specific demo of 25 to 45-year-old men. So if I see a guy and he's he's a young to middle-aged guy and he looks at me and I get a bit of a strange look, I'm like, okay, this guy probably recognized me from these videos. But if you're younger than that or older than that or a woman, I know there's 0% chance that you know me. It's just the statistics don't lie. You know, you can see the analytics. My audience has 2% women. It's not... Not not many women have have clicked on to look at a pocket jack's hand in their day. I don't think so. Uh, it, it, it's funny sort of seeing that data play out. You know, it's been it's cool having had that many people see your work and and, and watch your videos. And when you talk about the revenue side, by far and away, the value was in building my brand and in promoting Upswing Poker as you know the premier training site on the internet for poker that way more money was made on that end. And it, it, it's hard to quantify, right? You can look at the direct link traffic you drive, but it, it's so small compared to what the total amount of, of, of sales and, and revenue and, and users that join um, what that number is that you have to do a lot of guesswork. By far and away, the majority of the money was made through the business side. And I think that that's actually a, an important thing to think about for anyone considering getting into YouTube or getting into podcasting or whatever, whatever, whatever you're trying to debate getting into from a content perspective, 
you're going to have to think about monetization because platforms themselves are not going to really pay you a lot of money to produce the content because there's so many people looking to produce content. You're going to get paid by starting businesses and then using your reach to capitalize in those areas by creating a product that can create a lot of value for people. That's that's where the money can really be made. And the way the way these sites work is that the the big get bigger, right? Because your name shows up first when people search very general things like poker, what have you. Um, so it was a little mysterious that having dominated those streets, you decided to quit the videos. What, what was happening there? Well, you know, for me, it's not always been about just making the most money. If I want to make the most money, it would be very clear cut. Stay in poker, play poker a lot, promote poker, wear upswing everywhere I go, make videos. But sometimes you just get bored, you know? I mean, I, you strike me as someone that's done a lot of different things in his day and and likes to have different hobbies and, and different things that you get passionate about. And so sometimes you burn out. You're, you're not interested in it anymore. You want to try something new. And, and I found myself kind of in that spot several times, um, especially when it comes to poker. Poker has been great. It's given me everything that I have. Every dollar I have today, even if it was invested, it started in poker, right? So I'm so thankful that I, that I found this game. But that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm going to love playing it for the rest of my life. Sometimes you just get burned out of things or you don't enjoy them anymore and you want to take on new challenges. Upswing poker, it's still going strong. It has an amazing reputation as a teaching site. Tell me which content you're most proud of at Upswing Poker. I think that at this point, what I'm most proud of is the lab. It's our membership. Realistically, poker training for many, many, many years was done in the exact same fashion, which was you sign up and you just get this plethora of random videos all over the place by tons of people. And so you kind of have to wade through. I think back to my card runners experience. Anyone that's been in poker for a long time remembers card runners. You know, there were some great videos that you could watch, but it wasn't a cohesive plan. It was I signed up and then I just got a random video and I would get random videos every day. I think taking that model and changing it to be in a course format where you start at the beginning and you work your way to the end, I think that that was actually revolutionary for the training industry. And I look at a lot of the people that have come after us, they've taken that that method of, of learning because I think it's just better for the for the person that's, you know, the experience of, of, of learning, right? Start at the beginning, small team of guys. It's a, it's a course that you understand and can implement. It's not just, here's a session some guy played today and then learn about a spot. You know, you actually get to learn from the ground up. And I think that that's an important uh, facet to learning. I'm also very proud of my heads, of course, although it is a bit dated now because um, what was available in terms of tools at the time uh, obviously can't rival what there is today. I, I put together a course that, I, that really explained my thinking across the board in all kinds of different heads up spots. And, and it was, you know, sort of the sum of all of the stuff I had learned over the years in the way that I applied uh strategy uh, in heads up at a really high level. So I, I'm proud of that, even if now I think a lot of that information is a bit dated. But yeah, I think I think the lab the lab is is the shining the shining crown jewel of upswing poker. I, we continue to, to bolster it and make it stronger uh, every every day. And by making sure we have a, a qualified team of coaches, uh, I think that the lab uh, would be what I'm most proud of. Now, Ryan Fee is more of a PLO guy and you're more of a no limit guy. Do you, do you specialize in no limit at upswing or is it is it equally weighted? Ryan Fee's more of a, a seat of his pants kind of guy. Uh, he he's he's all over the place. He'll, he's played tournaments uh, here and there, even though he does not enjoy that format. He's played a bunch of no limit cash. He's played a lot of PLO. 
I, I wouldn't really describe him as anything too specific when it comes to playing. Uh, and he's and he doesn't do our PLO content at upswing. He's really only done no limit content. So he's not, he's not our PLO coach uh, in any capacity. Um, you know, a lot of the training nowadays is done by some of the newer guys uh, that we have. Uh, I think in PLO, uh, Chris Weiner and Dylan Wiseman do a lot of our content there. Uh, Alex Miller made a recent advanced tournament course that there's quite good people can learn from. Um, Jacob Dahl did a mixed game course. Uh, I, I could go on and on. We've had, we've had so many great players make different courses at upswing, but um, you know, I think, I think that uh, in terms of actually creating the material, I don't really think that fees is the guy to make a lot of up-to-date solve or proof material because he's not playing in those games anymore. And I think that a really important part of coaching is to have people that can actually teach the material and they actually know the material, you know, they're actually good players. So um, at this point, no, we're not, we're not, he, at least for fees, uh, he's not too dedicated to that anymore. I, I am putting together some sessions uh, that I played versus Negreanu. I have all my footage recorded so I can go through and teach people and talk about some of the spots that I played from the challenge and going to be adding that into the lab. So I think people will be looking forward to that for sure. Well, let's get in the weeds a bit there. And then I want to go uh, towards your, your current upswing, shall we say you you've gotten everything right Uh before the challenge, during the challenge, after the challenge, you said the last six to nine months has been a, a sort of a career time for you. But digging into the challenge, um, okay, so Daniel takes this on. Daniel is a hyper-competitive person. It has served, that hyper-competitiveness has served him very well over time. Um, he's not afraid to take on challenges such as this. Um, so at a certain point, you're working out terms on Twitter. It becomes clear that the match is going to happen. You, you started studying in anticipation of the match, maybe a couple of months before the terms had been settled. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And you had not played much in the previous two years. Is that correct? Yeah. In fact, I think actually one of the last time I played was against you. Oh, man. We, yeah, we might have to revisit that in a thousand hand sample so you can beat me up. <laughs> yeah. The 10 the ten hand sample I can deal with. Yeah, yeah. So you hadn't played in a couple years. And you have this vast experience base where you had, had once gotten to the top of the No Limit Pyramid. So you know that you're going to have to take a modern approach chat with guys that are dealing with solvers all day, every day. Um, one of the, one of the issues with solvers is that when a poker player is learning new lines, they're forced to throw away their previous experience base. And there's some cost to throwing away the previous experience base to when, when you undertook the new study, did you decide like, okay, I am a blank slate or did you want to sort of balance your new study with your old experience base? I think that it would have been too difficult to try and mix those two things together because then you're constantly asking questions. Is this better than what I was doing before? Uh, you know, what am I going to keep? What am I going to leave? And there was some spots that uh, I, I debated it. For example, one spot that I used to do a lot of back in the day was if there was a flush, uh, a flush out there, let's say there's three diamonds. When I would have the ace of diamonds, I would bluff very aggressively with that card some of the time. 
And then I would do it when I had um, flushes as well as bluff with that card because I know that they can't have the nut flush. Um, that, that concept ha happens in PLO a lot more than No Limit. And the reason it doesn't happen in No Limit is because that card's actually not a good bluff card because you want them to have floated the prior streets with that card, right? Let's say that the turn, the flush gets in and you have the Ace of Diamonds and your point of bets, you're going to for sure at least call. So when you have it as the guy betting and they call, well, now you block the folds on the river. So the solvers actually don't like having cards like that for a lot of the, the bluffs when you're representing flushes. They prefer to have middling flush cards that block the flushes that might trap. So, for example, I think about that concept, and I was talking about that with my coach. Uh, his name is FrabXD. I also work with Clicker. These are guys that, you know, if, unless you're really up to date in the modern uh, online streets, you won't, you won't know who they are. But, um, you know, Frab said to me, you know, that bluff candidate is worse than the better ones. But it's not a lot worse. And so if you find that that metric for you is something you could implement in the game consistently, then I think it's fine to use. But I kind of stayed away from that because I really wanted to just try and lean towards using the right candidates whenever I could and try to gain a small amount of EV in those situations and learn as I went along to be more balanced and, and to use the right hands because you do sacrifice a small amount of EV by bluffing with the incorrect candidates. But what's most important is making sure that you're bluffing enough and making sure that you're calling enough and making sure you're betting enough. Because the biggest mistake you can make is to be under bluffing in a lot of these scenarios. In that scenario, you don't get to win with your bluffs. And additionally, your opponent can exploit you if they don't bluff you enough. So, or they don't, or rather if they uh, do um, a lot of folding. So the point is it's more important in poker to be balanced with frequency than it is to pick the exact right combo. But if you want to play at a truly world-class level, you're going to have to do a healthy amount of both. Frab XD, give us a little bit of background on on him. How did you how did you find him? How did he get to the top of this game? What is his day to day like? Right. So uh, when I started this challenge, I started asking everyone I knew, "Hey, who's good right now? Who could I work with?" Just just kind of put my tentacles out there and and see see what what I got back. And uh, I met Frab through one of those channels. He he showed me some of his results he's had in his career. We talked a bunch of spots and I could just tell immediately this guy was the real deal. There's, there's just this sharpness to some of the top online guys that when you talk poker with them that you just don't get when you talk to even good players. How old is he? Uh, he's 25 years old. So he's pretty old for online, online standards. Uh, I was resident old man. Where's he from? He's from Sweden. And he's been playing, I guess, for uh, 10 years or so? Uh, I would assume less than that. I'm not sure when he started, but yeah, you know, five, seven, eight, something like that, I'm sure. He's a little bit more of the of the coach. Uh, the guy is always studying, learning, always preparing notes, always preparing, um, you know, analyzing samples and, and, and really trying to take your game to the next level versus, um, you know, actually playing the super high stakes. Uh, Clicker was the other guy I worked a lot with. He was more of the player that plays high stakes. I mean, this guy's played basically everyone in heads up no limit lately. In my opinion, he's the best heads up player in the world right now. Uh, he's, you know, he's only 19 years old. Or did he turn 20? I forget. He's 19 or 20. Either way, he's not even allowed to go gamble in Vegas. Uh, and, and so the, te the team I was working with were, uh, you know, younger guys, uh, Scandi guys, and it, it is funny to be working with the Scandies. I spent most of my career battling them, but uh, super sharp guys, and, and I couldn't, I couldn't honestly find better coaches. So, what's his, what's his day to day like? How, how did he rise to the, to the top 
of, of poker knowledge. And is he is he strictly a heads up no limit? Yeah, he's strictly heads up no limit. Uh, I think I think he's just one of those guys that gets is very uh, detail and process oriented, where he really tries to make sure he understands the specifics, uh, and and constantly checks and, and learns and runs sim- sims to to be better and better at it. I'm not sure what his day to day is like. I think he prefers more of a coaching role than a playing role. Uh, I think is is my take on 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 just him overall, but he's also played a lot of heads up in the mid to high stakes arena and he's won an amazing clip. So uh, I'm not sure what it was like for him coming up. I can say during the challenge, this guy was just meticulous with the, with the amount of notes that I received in, in ways that I fucked up hand. So that was, uh, that was definitely interesting to, to read every day I'd wake up and there'd be a fresh batch of things that I messed up the day before to, to go through, which is always good to try and improve your game and, and understand spots better. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know day to day. He's also in Europe, right? So the time zones are kind of weird. Uh, obviously, when I wake up, he's been up for seven, eight hours or whatever. So, yeah. So in your in your match with Daniel, you were not allowed any sort of technical assistance during play. Um, but you were allowed to have a team of coaches that you consulted with over the course right, so- of the challenge. So these were the rules. We were allowed to use software to help us manage the tables and all the options on it. So I could have something that said a randomized number. I could have a timer on it. I could have a button that percentage pot. I could have anything from the software to manage the tables. I, we were also allowed to have coaches. That was totally fine. We were also allowed to have uh, people manually track stats. That was allowed. Uh, and then we were also allowed to have notes and ranges up for, for what we wanted to, to do in, in the game. So the, the line was specifically nothing could in real time tell you what to do. That was the line. And I, and I think for most online poker players, you kind of understand that's the line, right? If, if, you, if you're playing and something says fold now because of the hand situation, then you're cheating. You know, that's just, I think, pretty clear cut. Okay, so there was, there was some amount of uh, software allowed, but, but it was quite limited. No software to, that makes decisions for you, right? Or, or tries to um, use information that has happened in a hand to make a decision for you. And that and that's called in poker terminology real-time assistance and and right. sites have basically tried to eliminate that by seizing accounts if they think that real-time assistance are being used. Yeah, sites do their best to monitor and prevent it. Different sites to varying degrees and and just a piece of advice for me, if you're playing online poker, make sure you're playing on a site that takes the stuff seriously because if they don't, you could be playing a bot. And guess what? You're not going to beat a bot. That's not bots are better than humans nowadays. This isn't something where, oh yeah, well I'll beat it. No, you're not. You're going to lose to the bot. So uh, it's important the sites take this seriously and try to prevent it. Long term, a really important part of the health of poker is going to be can sites, you know, battle against people using uh, either bots or real time assistance to to protect the player pool. So take this seriously because it's not something you're going to be able to overcome. Which which sites that uh, people might be playing on um, are are good? Well, it's tough. I, 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 I know that there's not a yeah. there's not an active uh, legal environment for poker, unfortunately. But I don't know. Just popular ones are like uh, America's Card Room or things like that. I I don't know what's thought to be good or bad in terms of bot detection. I think the the best and, and take this with a grain of salt because I've only really played the U.S. sites. Uh, I'm based out of, of Vegas, so I've not been playing on any of these European sites that I'm going to be talking about. But the best 
to my understanding, I think Poker Stars does is the, has the strongest anti-bot stance. They most actively monitor and make people prove that they are not bots and trying to protect the players. So I think I think Poker Stars is probably the the best the best one. Um, but there are a lot of other sites that are making moves. You know, ACR in the past has had a lot of bots, but they've been uh, trying to improve that lately. They hired Nananoko, Randy Liu to try and uh, you know find these bots and 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 basically protect those games. So they definitely care. Uh, I, I know that Phil cares. Phil Nagy, the CEO, cares. Um, uh, I think WSOP.com, I'm not sure if they do a good job detecting bots or if it's just such low stakes on that site that no one seems to fucking care, but uh, definitely doesn't seem to be many bots on WSOP.com other than maybe a couple guys that, that it's possible or questionable. Um, I think Party Poker tends to have a few bots, to my understanding. that They're quite as aggressive with that, but... You know, I, I, I would just be doing a lot of guessing and I don't want to throw sites under the bus just because, you know, I heard from some guy that they have bots. I, it's not firsthand experience for me and I don't think that would be fair to those guys. Now, in terms of the match, um, you won a lot of money. You won at a at a healthy clip of somewhere between nine and ten big blinds per hundred hands. Um, the way that poker players think about win rates is in terms of this per hundred hands metric. Um, It's, it sounds like you won most of the money by uh, winning a high percentage of pots entered by uh, winning the non showdown pots. Maybe, maybe you could summarize big picture why you think you won. In poker, there's only two ways to win. I know it seems like there's a very, it's a very complicated game and so much is going on and it is a complicated game but at the end of the day there's only two ways to win either somebody folds and the other guy wins so that's called non-showdown doesn't get to showdown winnings or at the end of the hand you both see what each other had and the best hand gets the money there's no other way to win in poker it's just those two so you have showdown winnings and you have non-showdown winnings it's important to try and win in both it's an, if you play correct balanced poker and heads up, you're pretty likely to win in, in both if you're a lot better than your opponent. But people can play different styles where you're much more likely to win in one. And let me give some extreme examples. Let's say I play a guy and his strategy is he shoves every hand. That guy is always going to win when someone folds because it's never him. So if there's a fold, it's you. So that guy will every time beat you in non-showdown winnings. However, when you call, and you'll get to call a lot because you, he's shoving every hand, you're going to have a really strong hand that's much better than him, and you're more likely to win. So even though he's beating you in non-showdown winnings, you're beating him in showdown winnings at such a clip that you're going to win the match. So typically speaking, when you play an optimal style or you you, you try you strive to play an optimal style, you're going to win more in the part that your opponent is weaker at. Right. If your opponent tries to play strong hands, you'll beat them in on showdown. If your opponent tries to play too loose, you'll beat them when hands get shown down at the end. So, so really, the the balance of playing uh, at a really top level is to be winning enough in both of those manners. I think versus Negranu, early on in the match, in the middle of the match, he was looking for just hands that were a bit too strong overall to go the distance with. Even when he would bluff, I think he was looking for too specific of bluff candidates instead of trying to just you know sometimes 
maybe you pick the hand that doesn't seem perfect but needs to bluff. He was picking hands that were a bit too strong. And so overall, when I look at his one hand percentage, I think it ended up being somewhere around 47, 48. I kind of have to estimate because we don't have hand histories yet. We just have the data that we tracked manually. So I think he probably was winning something like 47, 48% of hands. And what that means is that when somebody folded, a lot of times it was him. The problem with that when you play versus aggressive players is you're going to end up not winning enough pots. And while that's great when you have good hands, and we saw plenty of hands this challenge where Negreanu hit a big hand and trapped me and I bluffed and got stacked. That happened a bunch. You can look back a lot of the biggest spots this challenge were that happening. That looks great when that happens, but the problem is it's very hard to make big hands in poker. We all know this. Anyone that plays poker knows most of the time you have somewhere between nothing and maybe some kind of middling pair. That's kind of where a lot of the, the money is won in poker is what do you do when you have all of these worse, these, these bad hands? So he just wasn't winning enough of those pots, I think, to have a, a chance to win it at, to win this match or rather to have a good chance to win this match. And I think once we finally do get these hand histories, we're going to see that uh, the the graphs will will reflect that. And I, I think eventually we're going to get them. I think WSOP is in the process of trying to prepare this request. They've said that we can do it. I'm hoping we can do it. I would love to be able to show these stats and, and I will definitely post them publicly if I do end up getting, getting this information. Since he's winning it basically too much in showdown and we can infer not enough in non-showdown. Um, he's under bluffing in your in your terminology, or is it fair to say that he's under bluffing? And you had said earlier that under bluffing is um, a a bad mistake to be making heads up. Um, give us the give us the the rationale why under bluffing is is such a bad thing in a heads up match. Under bluffing relative to game theoretic optimal. For sure. So if, you, if you're losing a non-showdown, it means one of two things. Either you're not bluffing enough or you're not calling enough. Those, it's one or the other. Uh, in my opinion, I think Daniel was most likely not bluffing enough and his calling was probably okay. Maybe there's a few spots he didn't call quite enough as well, but I think it probably more stemmed from not bluffing enough. And that has a that has a pretty bad bad effect in your game in a lot of ways. I think the first thing is if you're not bluffing enough, then when you check, you have all these weak hands you're not supposed to have, right? So let's say you have two guys and they both have nothing, and one guy checks, giving up his nothing. The other guy bluffs. This guy just folds and loses. So it not only affects when you when you have bad hands, your ability to win pots. That's a really important part of heads up. It also affects. When you check your opponent's ability to bluff, now he gets to bluff more more aggressively, or sorry, more successfully, because you just have too many weak hands that simply have to fold. So it has this compounding effect. You're weaker when you check, and then when you bet, you're too strong, or you're not betting quite often. So your opponent could exploit you by folding hands that maybe versus someone that was playing optimal, you'd have to call, but you don't want to call because you don't think that he's bluffing at the optimal frequency. Basically, think about it like this. When you bet in poker on the river, and let's say you're betting in a perfect equilibrium, essentially, when your opponent calls, they lose to all your value bets, right? And when your opponent folds, they lose to all your bluffs. And the idea is that bet, when you do bet, just wins the size of the pot because your opponent can't do anything. If they fold, they lose. If they call, they lose. Now, 
by having bluffs in there, that means you get to win the pot more often. Let's say that if I only value bet, I could bet 30% of the time, but now I bluff, I can bet 40 or 45% of the time. Well, now I get to win more often. You can see what I'm saying. Rather than winning the pot 30% of the time, I'm winning the pot 40, 45% of the time. And there is no counter. There's no ability for your opponent to exploit you because your range is balanced. And that's the kind of idea that you're trying to put forward here. I want to bet at an optimal ratio where my opponent can't counter me. And thus I get to win the pot the most time as possible. That optimal ratio would, would lead you often to over bets, which probably took Daniel outside of his experience base a bit. Is that fair? Over bets are a big part of element hold'em. And when you watch live poker, you don't see it because it is a bit more of an advanced concept. I think particularly on the turn and river, especially on the river, there's a lot of over bets at, uh, at equilibrium. You know, when I, so let's just say in heads up, you open and your opponent calls and the flop is Jack nine, five with a flush draw and they check call and the turn is a deuce and they check to you solvers like over bets here because your opponent isn't supposed to have a lot of good hands to check call this flop. Uh, if you have two pair, you're going to want to raise it quite often because there's all these draws. Uh, your opponent's never hitting the deuce, right? And then you in position still have all of the value bits. You have all your two pairs. You have all your sets. You have all your over pairs. You have all your good top pairs. Um, you have way more strong hands to the other guy. So in spots like that, the solver will very much recommend betting big. And as you get deeper, betting even bigger. You might bet 200% the size of the pot in that turn. That's not something you see in live poker that much because players aren't used to implementing it or they don't know or or it's not normal or whatever it would be, but that's quite common online. And then same board, let's say you bet 200% of the turn on that turn or 150% of the turn on that turn. Well, now if the river is, let's just say a seven, so it's jack nine, five, deuce, seven. Well, now you have 10, eight and eight, six, but the other guy doesn't really have those hands. Maybe he occasionally calls turn with 10, eight, but he never calls eight, six. So when I have three of a kind there, I could just jam 400% pot. No problem. All in. You don't have sets. You don't have straights. I can just jam and I can do the same thing with my bluffs. If I have, you know, if I have eight high there, I have eight deuce, whatever I have or eight three, sorry, eight deuce would be a pair. I can just jam because I know you don't have the nuts. So basically in spots like that, the solver really likes using very big sizes and what's cool about big sizes is it makes the price of your opponent so bad that you actually get to bluff more right? If I jam that river, I'm only going to have a value bet, you know, 60% of the time or so. Uh, and I'm going to have a lot of bluffs off 35, 40% bluffs, but they still can't just call me because I'm still mainly value betting, right? So it's basically in those spots by using these really big sizes, you get to bluff more and then you get to win more because of it. And I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think that's something that Daniel probably had much experience with before this challenge. And big picture, that strategy is about winning more non-showdown pots it's about winning no it's about winning the pot the most often and i know that's a weird semantics difference but if my opponent decides just to call my all-ins all the time then then i'll win more in showdown right because when i have the good hands the straights the sets the the strong two pairs and he does call i win every last dollar he has so it's about winning the most money regardless of what my opponent does. And if you play someone that has too many weak hands or folds too often, the result will be more non-showdown winnings, right? But if you play somebody loose and spewy, the result will be more showdown winnings. It really depends on the style you're playing. And if you play against somebody that's very good and balanced, the result will be 
uh, fairly equal in, in both regards because they'll be countering you in both ways. On pots where uh, Daniel is the aggressor, has the initiative, whether because he has a strong holding or because he's on a bluff line, um, you um, you mentioned in, in Joey Ingram's podcast that your uh, – you thought you might have ha had the mistake of calling too much. Um, calling, it seemed like you were saying that you thought you might have had the mistake of calling too much relative to equilibrium, which you took to be a, an especially serious mistake because Daniel might have erred towards underbluffing. Um, is that is that a reasonable summary of what you said in, in Joey's podcast? And is is that when you look back at it, like the one sort of leak that you had? in the match or that would be a fair assessment. It's tough when so we all have our instincts, we all, we all have our, our internal decision-making process that tells us what we think is right. And then we have to weigh that versus other things that we know to decide if that's what we want to do. But whenever you get in a spot in poker, you have, you have your instincts for what's correct as a poker player. You're just going to have them for more conservative players. It tends to be to fold or, or to check. And for the spewier aggressive guys, it might be it might be bet or make a loose call, and so you have to know what where you are relative to what's correct, and then sort of try to to to, to pull yourself into line with what what is optimal. For me, I, I'm someone that does not like to get bluffed. Uh, I don't I don't know why. It's just it's just the reality of the situation. I I tend to overcall. I tend to to search too far and wide for ways to continue to play my hands, and so. In a lot of spots where my opponent bets or jams or whatever they're going to do, I tend to pick too many hands to continue with. Versus Daniel, I think that that was a mistake in some spots. It was an especially bad mistake because I don't think he was picking out enough bluffs in some spots where that those loose calls might have been particularly good against him. I think that they would not have been versus Daniel. So a big part of this match for me, especially down the stretch, was try to keep it in line, try and try and call the hands that are supposed to call, but not wider than that. Because if I do that, uh, he might be exploiting me by not bluffing. Now it would seem that an important part of such a long challenge, 25,000 hands would be um, some sort of life coach, performance coach, mental coach. Did you have any of that on your team or did you just trust your, your long experience in poker? I didn't think that was necessary. I already had enough coaches and people working with me. I, don't, I just didn't feel I need anyone else. Uh, what I did to prepare for this was I really tried to put things that could be automated or run by other people. Uh, tried to put those processes into place where I didn't have to worry about things. I made my investment strategy a little bit more uh, simple and and conservative just, just for uh, the sake of well-being to be able to focus elsewhere. Uh, I tried to put myself basically in a, in a position where I didn't have to worry about a lot of other things. I could I could really put my best foot forward on the match itself, and then worry about everything else after the match concludes, which uh, which is nice in a way. You know, it's it's nice getting to fully dedicate to something and and be able to be all in and consumed by it. And even though I'm not someone that loves to play poker, and I do think that the studying process is quite grueling. It, it is. It was a nice just to get to be consumed by something in a fashion where I knew it was what I was doing today, and to have to have simple purpose can can have a lot of reward. I think. So take us through. Uh, okay, in your story, it, it gets off to kind of a smooth start in this challenge, and then 
sort of inciting incident. You have one bad session. Um, that doesn't put things into question, but it, it shakes the ship a little bit. Um, maybe take us through that history. There was a session in the challenge. It's the single greatest loss either player took in in one session. And it was about two thirds, three fourths of the way through where I lost almost $400,000 in a session, which is a really, a really big loss. I mean, a buy-in's 40 K and 10 buy-in sessions happen. In fact, I, I was surprised that we hadn't had any up until that point, but I think given how little variance there had been in the match thus far, and given the standard deviation for the match seemed to be a bit on the more conservative side. And then also given that I was currently up a million dollars, it didn't really feel like it was going to happen. And then it did. And, and sometimes it, you know, reality, reality sets in and, and it can be, it can give you that kick in the ass you need just to get things a little more into gear. But yeah, I went from up a million to up 600 K with about, 6,000 hands to go. And you look at that result and think, man, if we have another one of these kinds of sessions, I'm only going to be up 200K. And that's anyone's ball game down the stretch. Five buy-ins, that's nothing in poker. Nothing. So it sort of, you know, it, it, it awoke me a little bit to, to think, you know, I need to make sure I keep studying. I need to make sure I keep preparing. Uh, maybe I should make some changes in my strategy to, to lower uh, variance a bit. And this is kind of what we talked about a bit earlier with side bets where when you have side bets that are substantial, it could, it could change your, it can change what you need to do and how you need to play. And I started to look at this and think, okay, I'm up 15 buy-ins. Well, when I have a, a spot that's really close, it makes sense to take the lower variance option. If I think it's going to increase the chance of me winning on the side. And so we, I started to have to debate these things. And ultimately I came to the conclusion to implement a limp strategy. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with limping, Limping is very much frowned upon in the heads up community, but it is actually a slightly stronger strategy than playing only raise. Uh, there are some hands that do benefit by limping and it lets you have more options pre-flop to create value. But the thing is, it's, only, it's very slight value. Uh, it doesn't change your, your interest point rate by more than 1% or 2%. So in my preparation for this challenge, for the sake of simplicity, I used a, a raise-only strategy to, to make sure that I was um, able to prepare for those spots more in depth rather than adding this limping strategy that would be complicated to implement and, and take a lot of time and add complexity to my study. But at this point in the challenge, it made a lot of sense to add limping because now if I limp, I'm going to decrease the pot size. I want to get to play these smaller pots. I'm not going to have as many big swings. Uh, I'm lowering my deviation. And so I thought it made sense to, to put it into play. So I did limp. And Daniel was not a happy camper about the limping. I'll tell you that right now, because the first session after I, I did the limping, he started to respond by stalling and just taking 20 seconds to open his button on both tables. Every decision, he would tank it down. And he was basically trying to respond by taking as much time as he could to, to, to get himself more time to study. So uh, that session, you know, it was one of the only sessions, the, the big loss was one of the only sessions that I felt bad after. You know, I mean, when you play poker, you're used to sometimes taking big hits. It's going to happen. But I think what hurt about that one session was just the fact that I had it so locked up and now I didn't. You know, I was still probably going to win, but now now it wasn't 100%. And, uh, you know, the, just, just stomaching that while also eating a 400K loss was, was a tough pill to swallow that night. I can imagine. Um, well, when you didn't have to consider variance in your strategy at all, and then all of a sudden you do, that, that is tough. Um, so for your ambitious, no limit player out there, 
that doesn't have the ability to play to pay uh, Frap XD for for training. Which tools do you think are the are the best on the market currently? Obviously, you mentioned the lab at Upswing Poker, and then which which other tools, perhaps? I think if you're going to take poker seriously nowadays, you're going to need to have a solver for sure. Uh, you can figure out what's out there. I'm, I'm not the data on what the best solvers are for this challenge. Uh, I used PO in, in my analysis, but I've heard there are a lot of other good solvers that are options as well. I would recommend having training in some capacity, whether it's private coaching or a site like Upswing Poker, where you can learn about how to use these solvers and take away some concepts. You know, the reality is it takes a long time using these tools to get good. And so having people that have done it before teach you some of the things that they have found can really, uh, it can it can be a, a very valuable shortcut on your term to improving. I'd also recommend using some some uh, software training tools like like for example Lucid GTO is one that I use to practice with or GTO Trainer, um, basically training tools where you get to play against bots that or you play against your sims or bots that basically say, okay this was a mistake this was correct uh, and then kind of getting to, to to drill in these practice uh, this practice I think it's really important uh, for improving your game. Um, to actually play hands, I think that's important as well. So I think all of these tools are, are very useful and you can use them to, to improve your game. In the Joey podcast, you mentioned Primordial AA. Brian Pellegrino is also part of your team. What what role did he play? Yeah, so Brian and Caleb and Ryan, basically his team of guys, they they have uh, some software that we used to create pre-flop ranges for essentially the sizes that Negrano was using. Um, it's not publicly available software, so I can't tell people where, to, where you can check it out, but... Uh, they basically have some really strong AI using some techniques that are very new for uh, poker, essentially poker solutions um, that were extremely strong and helped uh, give me an edge to this challenge. So those are available in expensive, like one-to-one coaching. I don't even think those are available right now, to be honest with you, but I'm not totally sure. Okay. It was a nice, it was a nice connection to have. That's for sure. And uh, primordial has been around forever, right? Didn't he play yeah. like on, on party poker way back in the day? Yeah, he, he, he played a lot of set and goes back in the day. Uh, he was, I think he was more of a heads of set and go player, but uh, he's been in the suites for a long time. I, he doesn't play poker anymore, though, I don't think. Uh, people would find it hard to believe that you're retiring after this match, having, having invested in, in learning to such an extent. Um, what's next in terms of heads up, no limit? For heads up, no limit? That, that I'm not sure. I, I, we've seen a real a real boost of action lately and heads up no limit. I'm not sure if people are pumped up about the challenge or, or what, but I've seen all kinds of matches breaking out all over the internet. You know, it's interesting to see that because when I retired from heads up no limit in 14, 2014, 15 or whatever the year was, it was kind of dead and now it's more alive than it's ever been. I don't know if that's just a, a current spree of people enjoying the duking it out, maybe coronavirus, maybe it's the Bitcoin run up. I have no idea what's prompting this seemingly random surge of people looking to duke it out on the internet. I, I, I really don't know, but seems like it's a pretty good time for the sport of Heads Up No Limit. What's the biggest thing going on right now? I saw the uh, Landon Tice, young up-and-comer against Bill Perkins. Yeah. Laying so, uh, nine big blinds per hundred, which is a lot. Yeah, so that match uh, I was a negotiation on, on Twitter between Bill Perkins and Landon. He's this young kid, kind of up-and-comer kid. Uh, where Lynn has to lay nine big blinds per hundred. I think that that one's really interesting. I considered some side bets. Ultimately, I've stayed out, at least so far. It's a funny one because I've played both of them, right? So I have a good insight into that match. Landon is pretty good, but he's not a heads-up-no-limit pro. It's not, it's not like 
a top guy is taking on Bill Perkins. It's a guy who's a good player who will dedicate time and study, but isn't even a heads-up pro taking on a guy who is very much a recreational businessman. What does that look like? What what Can Landon overcome nine big wins per hundred? I think if Bill Perkins doesn't take it seriously, I think Landon will win. But if Bill really studies and ups his baseline to be pretty solid, nine big points is a lot. I mean, that's basically what I beat Negreanu for. And that's that's the that's the break even point, right? And I'm and I'm a top heads up player. So if Bill Perkins can get to a similar level as Negreanu, I don't think Lennon's going to get to a place where he would play as well as I did. He would be winning if he could get to that level. But I don't think Bill is is, is very close to that level right now. So uh, it's going to kind of come down to can can Bill really, you know, really lock in and focus and learn and study. When we all know Bill likes to get out there and sail the seas in his in his boat, uh, I I don't know I, that that's kind of the question you have to ask yourself. As far as other matches go, there's other stuff kind of percolating around. I've heard Limitless might play might play MJ in, a, in some kind of live challenge, uh, and then just today uh, Daniel Negreanu challenged Phil Hellmuth to a heads up match because Phil Hellmuth actually this happened right before I came on the podcast. I was reading about this. Wow. Uh, Phil Hellmuth said he really didn't respect the way that Daniel played. Or it didn't like it. Thought he played really poorly, basically. And then, and then Negreanu threw down the challenge. So, oh wow, that could be that could be amazing content. Oh my god, that would be hilarious to watch, man. I just I couldn't even I couldn't even wait. I mean, I love Phil, but Daniel would crush him at this point with all of the study that he's had. I can't imagine Phil winning, but oh man, it would be so much fun to watch that. I'm I'm rooting for. Was it was it heads up for roll style? Are they going to play for a lot of money? I'm not sure if it's even going to happen right now. All I know is that Negreanu has issued the challenge to Phil Hellmuth, and we're going to see what he does from here. Oh, that would be beautiful. I might have to throw in on that. I might. Oh, you, you might well, no, I, I might just have to I, get the Twitter storm going. Like, oh, I I, I, we, need to, we need to see that, definitely. You know, oh, actually, I have a question for you. Okay. I know you were going to play Phil Galfond at some we're point. We're playing this summer. Oh, you're playing this summer. Okay, yeah. cool. Nice, nice. Yeah, we're what playing... The format is um, around a thousand hands because we're playing live. Okay. And we're playing 100, 200, and he's laying me 1.5 to 1, which is less than the, I think it's a little bit worse than the fair price. But um, what happened was um, it started out online and then we couldn't logistically do it and we we decided uh to do it live and that's what we agreed on to do it live so that'd be fun yeah it it would be great if it were more than a thousand hands and maybe we will change it up because it's definitely this summer um maybe we will change it up so that we kind of go back to the original idea, which was a uh, live online combo so that we're, we're playing live with our computers in the same spot. You know what I mean? Like WSOP.com, we're both logged in, playing, playing two tables of PLO, but yeah. we can see each other. Battleship style. Yeah, battleship style, that'd be, that'd be fun. But then we would have to go back to the old odds, which were like, uh, I think four to one. How, how do you four feel about this? Have you been studying, you've been up in your PLO game? I, I have been studying. Um, I need to study more, but I've been I've been doing some study. Um, and I talked with Sauce a bit about the 
the right path I should follow. And um, yeah, plan to do some study before we before we get going. I hope so, man. Lord knows how many hours that guy spent studying. This is this is gonna be his fourth yeah. challenge by that time, I think, right? Yeah, but ours is a lot different because we did lay out the rules on text and um we reset each day, but like the reality is that a good bit of the results will happen in pots that we play at the end of the days because the stacks are getting deeper over the course of each day. Yeah. And um, a good bit of the result will be determined by what happens in key pots, like at the end of days. It's a little bit different than yours in the sense that we're, we're, we're not just playing 20,000 PLO the, the whole time. Like we're, we're having stacks that are going to get deeper over the course of each day. And like if either one of us loses a key pot, say at the end of day one, it, w- it will make a big difference in, in the result. Um, well, there were plenty of, of four, four to five buying pots in my challenge where stacks got deep. And I don't know, I, I like I haven't I haven't looked at the math of the thing. Like what's a fair handicap, me versus you, a thousand hands online no limit. Online no limit. Like I mean, a fair a fair well, I guess you have to have the stakes too, right? Because you get to you get to win at this at whatever the stake level is. So let's say it's fifty, a hundred, a thousand hands. What's what would what would your intuition suggest the break even side bet would be? Let and let's just say it's it's on um the side bet base is 20,000. Problem here is if you get up much at all, you can just fold a lot of hands and be so likely to win. I mean, if you even stack me once, then I'm already in a not great spot. If you stack me twice, it's going to, you can just do a lot of stuff pre-flop to make sure you win. You know, you can start folding cusp hands. You know what I'm saying? You can play very different at that point, and and I can't do that much. You can start limping. You can do so much stuff. So I think in that scenario, the first, I actually think in that scenario, you have to play so different from equilibrium that I think it greatly reduces the edge of the the better player because the better player can't just try to win the pot the most they can. The better player has to take into account the side bet situation. So it gets strange. I'm not sure what fair would be. That's a good question. I I, I really don't know. I, I haven't thought about that format. With uh, Landon Tice versus Bill Perkins, if they were starting their match uh, 15 minutes from now, what advice would you give Bill? <laughs> uh, I'd say please don't do anything really spewy because if you're gonna if you're gonna lay nine big blinds, you just need to make sure you're not making huge errors. Yeah, that's. I, I think my advice would go the same direction, right? Like. Just take the handicap that you're being given in terms of pre-flop hand quality and and start there. Right? Like like if you if you get to if you get to start with the the knowledge that you have a, a nine big blind per hundred head start, um, that corresponds to a massive difference in in pre-flop hand quality, which goes a long way, right? Like if you if you can just throw out like the the bottom range of hands that other players are forced to play just in in trying to maintain equilibrium uh, that it's hugely valuable right like just i i would i would say that he should make sure that he's not making mistakes in airing too loose um and take advantage of the 
of the of the gift of being able to play uh, higher quality hands preflop. Well, so there's two ways to look at this, and and other people that I've talked to about it have made that made a similar point. My counter to that would be, anytime you make a mistake, you make a mistake. And so if you say, okay, well, you're going to play tighter preflop because you're being given big blinds. Okay, sure. You're making, you're saying, I'm going to make a mistake, but I'm I, I'm being covered by the amount of big blinds I'm getting. But it's still a mistake, right? So it's still eating into your profit. It would still be better to play the correct hands preflop because then you're just not making a mistake and you're closer to that win rate. But now you're going to have to make sure that you don't make mistakes with some of these hands post-flop. So I guess the question kind of becomes, is it more about minimum? Is it more about minimizing the risk of large post-op mistakes, or is it more about um, you know just trying to make sure you make as few mistakes as you can, no matter where those happen? And, and I think that there's some interesting debate to be had on both sides of it. But my advice for Bill be more specific. That man loves to get into some weird, funky spots and do some crazy shit. That's the stuff I would be very scared of if I was in Bill Perkins' corner, because I know Bill, and and, and he. He will put himself into just some crazy weird spots if he thinks that, you know, you're weak. Um, and if he just tries to lean too heavy on that, it's going to get very, very, very expensive. See, I would I would lean on the side of uh, playing suboptimally tight, knowing that you're giving something up there um, for exactly the reason that you say, because if you play suboptimally tight, you're, you're minimizing the risk of bad state bad things happening later on. You're minimizing the, the cost of mistakes that you will make later on. Um, and that has a lot of value. So for just for instance, like let's just say his opening range is, is optimal, right? Let's say his, his, his um, open race is optimal. Now he's three bet by Landon and he's deciding what to do. He has the luxury of being a little bit too tight in that spot. And I would advise him to play a little bit too tight in that spot relative to optimal because now um, playing too tight limits the impact of later mistakes, which are quite likely to happen. I mean, Landon is going to be good at playing those pots where he's three bet preflop and, and Bill um, is going to be less experienced and might make mistakes where the pot is big. So, um, just take the small cost of, of over, over folding or playing cautiously in a situation like that. Yeah, that, that that's fair, especially because a lot of hands are usually on that cusp, but my only counter to that would be, well, now Landon can, can exploit you by three betting a, a bluff heavy range knowing you're folding too much and just print value there and then, and then flat stronger. Uh, and then you're going to lose on that side as well. When he flats, you're up against a tighter range than you should be. And now you're not going to be able to win those pots as much. So really anytime you deviate from equilibrium, you open exploits up that could beat you in both sides of the game tree. And I don't know if, if it's best to try and, I mean, nine, nine big blinds is so much that, I mean, either of these strategies is fine. As long as you're, as long as you're, in the neighborhood of playing some reasonable post-flop poker, you're going to be doing just fine. I almost wonder if at nine big blinds, if there's some weird pre-flop shit you could do, maybe you use a 20 big blind three bet size where, you know, 
you're more polar and your opponent can't really play post flop. Can he overcome nine like that? You know what I'm saying? There, there could be, there could be really weird stuff that you could do pre flop where there isn't even a counter. I, 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 that's possible at nine, nine so much. Yeah. Nine yeah. is so much. I want a 10 over my career. <laughs> you know, we're talking about nine and this guy's not even a heads up pro. It's pretty wild. Yeah. It, it's, it's an ambitious bet. Yeah, Bill offered me 17. I said, Bill, unfortunately, I'm going to have to decline. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Lay you 17 big blinds. He says, fine, fine. How about 13? Bill, I'm, I'm not doing this, man. You can take it on. I'm glad he has the hunger. Yeah. Well, this was a lot of fun. It was. Thank it's you for having me on. I think uh, all of my audience will enjoy it, the, the poker people and the non-poker people. Glad to hear it. Glad I could stop by. All right. Let's chat soon.